This episode is brought to you by Think Water Broom. Think Water are your local water experts for irrigation projects big and small. Their fully stocked retail store sells the latest irrigation products, including fittings, pipe, filtration and solar supplies. Covering the Kimberley and Pilbara regions of Western Australia, their knowledgeable and passionate team are experts in the design and implementation of the most water-efficient irrigation and water management programs across all sectors. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Having grown up on an island and spending her childhood with the local Surf Lifesavers Club, Tanis Godfrey could never have predicted what her future held for her. A career in the Australian military, falling in love with a bloke from the bush, and going through the heartache of unsuccessful succession planning. It's so rare that we hear someone speak so candidly about their experience with succession planning even though it's something that every Australian farming family experiences at some point. So to Tanis, I say thank you for being willing to share your story. To start our chat, I had Tanis tell me about why she turned up a little bit late to our recording. At this time of year, actually all time of year, probably once a week, we'd have some tourists that have decided to head off-road down the planning courtesy of Google and or Apple Maps and find themselves in some sort of situation that just terrifies them and then generally around the campfire where we are they hear sort of further stories that lead to the situation that you saw this morning which is usually either lots of tears or frustration or anger or desperation by about half past seven in the morning so and so what was this girl worried about well she'd taken off down the plane in a car that probably shouldn't be out of in inner city, I'd have to say. Like they don't even have a spare tyre on this particular model and um, not realising that the Plenty Highway is dirt because they've done a Google or an Apple search and they've just kept going like most people go. Rather than turn back, they go, well, just keep going. Maybe it'll stop. And they got to a point where excuse me, they got to a point where they um, got a flat tyre and don't have any spares. So this particular model car has like a compressor and a can of green goo to get yourself out of any heavy duty situation, which of course wasn't much use. So another kind tourist had um, stopped and picked them up and brought them into us last night. So we just had to have a little bit of a powwow and try to figure out how to get them out of their predicament because of course they're in the very, very common 19 inch wheel low profile tire that we all carry here at stations just for this situation should they need it so yeah we're 
Um, but I'm sure we'll work something out over the course of the day. But yeah, she's, um, she's not alone. It happens quite a bit. Yeah. So like generally a tourist's biggest worry when they come in without their car is that there's a lot of, like, it's quite common for people who either break down or, um, who suffer some sort of damage because sometimes it is serious damage, like it'll be an engine failure that it's, it just costs too much money to tow a car from here. So a lot of cars do get abandoned. And then after a certain point, they, they get, whether it's trashed or they just get all the good bits taken off them by anybody who passes by. It's, it's fairly common on a lot of these outback roads, but as you can appreciate around the campfire, stories get embellished. So yeah, they kind of led these. Most tourists that find themselves in predicament, other tourists or people at the station make them all realise that it could happen like that night. So, yeah, in this particular case, one of the tourists had sort of been a bit heavy on the on the stories and, yeah, she thought she's going to go out there this morning and just have a frame left of her. <laughs> <laughs> Poor thing. Yeah, that would be terrifying. I think about that sometimes when I just go into the shops, though. Like, not that they're going to take all the bits of my car, but, you know, when I'm travelling at the moment and I've got, like, my saddle and my angle and my cameras and this podcast gear and depending on what town I'm in. Like, when I was in Queensland recently, I'm like, oh, this will be fine. But, you know, sometimes you go into certain towns, you're like, Is, can I? And you like, running into Woolies and, like, bolting around as fast as you can. You're like, got to get back to my car. Don't know if someone's going to try and, like, flog my stuff. Uh, but you said this happens about once a week. What are some of the other tourist experiences that you've had? Uh, like, we have this sort of thing. I think uh, the best ones in this region that, you know, I know us and, and the guys at Manus Creek and, and Glen Ormiston, we're sort of all pretty close proximity. I often feel the pain is over the wet sort of season or your, your sort of November, December, where there's not as many people on the roads and it's extremely hot. We generally get, you know, tourists doing a trip of the lifetime, again, courtesy of a Google or an Apple map with no just no planning or even ringing ahead or anything. And um, I guess probably the the most unfortunate recent one, well, there was two, but we had a family um, towed. We'd had some rain and then about three or four days later we had a Volvo towed in by um, some of the locals from uh, Borneo who'd just been coming through the back roads and came out and found this family who'd driven down the Urundandi Road um, and had food but no water and it had rained and so they'd driven their Volvo just straight into a bog and been bogged there for three days and were drinking out of puddles when these when um, the Bunny guys grabbed them, helped them, and they towed them all the way to here, which is like a two-and-a-half-hour tow. So I got them to us and um, there was language sort of thing, So, but one of the little girl that was with this particular family was great helping that out and we sort of – told them what to do. They, they were from Victoria, I think, and hadn't really been out of the city on the Uluru trip of a lifetime. And got them, we said, you've got to go back on the bitumen and go up to Camwell and just stick to the bitumen. That's the way you go on a Volvo and where you guys and you won't get lost, etc. Um, gave them quite explicit directions to go out of our driveway, which is about a K and a half long, and turn left to go back to Bullia. We wrote it down, we explained it. We waved them off with packed lunch and um, about half an hour, half an hour, 45 minutes later, my husband came back in the chopper and just said, 
get down to the creek <laughs> that cars float in the flooded river <laughs> i'm like what so we've all a couple of us up here just ran down and raced down and and here it is in the middle of the creek which when they left it was at point like one and when they've come back on gone through it was at point six and he's just driven straight into it and then obviously revved his car to try and get out of it which is flood which is that's the end of the volvo not that he realized that at the time meanwhile the the other ladies there with a coffee cup trying to bail out like this rushing creek that's coming up, bail it out with a with a cup. Little girl in the back's just trying to like pull of her CDs and stuff up and got her feet over the thing and, and he's just trying to get out the window not knowing what to do. And I'm like, get out of the car river. So we pulled them out and um but yeah, trying to explain to them that your car is now written off, you you know, insurance over the next three days and we flew them back into town and um once it, that all got sorted but you know they're very grateful and you know the the two my husband and and simon the fellas it sort of gave him the biggest hand he gifted a, a beautiful set of golf clubs which we're still going to try and set up the two more yokes somewhere here and have some competition but um yeah flew them into town and, and got them home but it's, yeah, it's just there is a story like that probably every two weeks. Like the next two weeks after that, there was like people getting stuck in hot wiring uh, road crew rollers to try and drive out of it. To yeah, it's, at least they knew how to hot wire stuff. I'd be buggered. I wouldn't know how to hot wire anything. I was. I would be lying if I said I wasn't impressed by that. That that particular group of people had like um, left two cars on an intersection and survivor style had written like help on the road with sticks and trees and had a fire going. Um, they'd run out of petrol and. Yeah, the the ones that had gone up the road, it had just been a, a button that they hadn't had pressed. But, yeah, they hot-wired the roller and, and then walked for another 20K in 50-degree heat, which, you know, you've got to give them the credit for. But, obviously, you can also die doing that. So Yeah, so I I can't emphasise this point enough for anybody listening. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I grew up in the city and somehow I still feel like I knew the rule before I came out to stations that you always stay with the vehicle. Like when you are doing a search or an aerial search or for somebody that's missing, it is so much easier to spot a vehicle than a body. Because let's be honest, if you leave your vehicle nine out of 10 times, you're probably going to perish. So if you perish by any means, at least like it's easier to find someone in a vehicle than under a tree, under a bush gosh knows what direction they've gone like just stay with the vehicle yeah 100 percent. and and but yeah i i'm the same i learned it very but yeah always stay with the amount of people that don't it does it makes it so much hard to find you and it also we don't know what direction that you've gone in because pretty much for the, the six it's stations that are finding lost people uh we work with the police but we're the ones that people come to or we're the people that they've rung so it's um as i said like Glen almost and ourselves and Manners do a lot just because of the position that we're in and we're, our location, the territory. And we work with Hearts Range and we work with Bullier Police and Mount Isa Police. But yeah, we can chuck a helicopter up and try and find you. But if you've left it, we've got nowhere even to know where to start. And yeah, so I'm a bit of a, I'm pretty stern with people when they come yeah, out. Like just never, I just, I just don't know really of any circumstances where somebody has left the vehicle and it's turned out good. No. Like, and so not only are you going to perish, then there's the trauma of someone else try- finding you. Once you leave that, like, you just, people could be anywhere. Like, you don't know what direction. It's so you can't, foot traps, you know, wind, whatever. Like, it's just. Yeah. And I think people forget, you know, especially if you haven't, like, I don't think anybody does it on purpose. purpose. Like, yeah. there are some really 
silly people, but on, on the majority it's a mistake. But uh, And I think it's also a reflection of the internet culture at the minute where, you know, get around Brisbane or Melbourne or Sydney, you know, pop out your device and do your map search and go there. It's not okay to do that when you're traveling three, four, five thousand kilometers in the outback. It just doesn't have the information that you need. And, um, you know, I always say just go to the op shop and buy a map book for two bucks because you also don't have range. You don't have anything like that. We use like Hema Maps app, but there's, there's ways to do it a lot more sensibly and you've got to kind of plan your trip. But so many people just plan like a 5,000K trip like they would going 10K to the shops and, and then they don't realise till it's too late, um, which is great. But it's also all the station's jobs to try and fix that up at a time of year that it's very hard for us to get around. We might not be able to drive if it's rained or mm. just not a lot of people around support us. So, yeah, it's – um. Yeah, plan your trips, people. Plan your trips. Be safe. It's Stay actually, on the bitumen. Yeah. <laughs> Stay on the bitumen if you don't know how to drive on dirt. That's actually just reminded me of a story I heard coming on the way to Tobermory. I stopped in and visited someone. And um, this is – so this is a secondhand story I've heard. But so we're talking about, you know, don't leave your vehicle, especially if you're out remote. But even – this was a story – so two people from a station had gone into town – like a ringer and the other one was a cook. And then on the way home, they kind of, you know, um, convoyed. But then this is the other thing, like one person got home and they weren't that far from the station. Um, but the cook, my understanding is broke down about 40 Ks from the homestead. But then the person who they were in convoy with got back to the homestead, didn't wait, didn't check in, went off and did stuff. Anyway, the cook who broke down got out and went to walk. And I think this person was maybe not in the best health in the first circumstance and then also it was in the middle of summer and ended up perishing 40 k's from the homestead on the driveway like and you so you think oh maybe i have to be out whoop whoop way bush you know for that to happen but this is just somebody who'd gone on a, on a run into town to get some stuff you're driving with convoy from someone else from the station and you don't make it back home like you just wouldn't think that that's going to happen yeah and i think that's a big thing like you know 40 k is long way the houses aren't on the road out here they're not you're not going to walk to a neighbour very easily. There's, um, and and I think it's just that other understanding that in our rainy or hot season, whatever, but that October through to April, there's not a lot of travelling that happens. Like it's really hot. We don't, you know, things are done in the morning or done in the afternoon, but there's not a lot of tourists. There's not a lot of people driving around. It's 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 just a lot smaller sort of um, people. So you are just better to stay with your car. But yeah, the um, the heat is something I think like some of the people that we found like they've got out of their car and were walking like in December with a two-year-old and a four-year-old plus that like had gone 17Ks from their vehicle when the ball runner picked them up um, from next door and brought them back. So, yeah, just it is a really dangerous sort of situation and it is like everybody probably most of the stations are sitting there but I know everyone – all the stations that are on highway like us feel the frustration and just wish people would, you know, just make smart choices, really. Yeah, and like you said, you can't rely on Google Maps, uh, Apple Maps. It makes me wonder, though, you know, when people come out of their last, I wouldn't call Bully or a major service town, it's, what is it, a gas station and a couple, I don't know, it's, it's not a big yeah, town. Tourist in a shop. But, you know, the last place on the bitumen with some fuel, why is there not a giant-ass sign that says, you know, 
you will not have phone service for the next 800 kilometers or whatever, because you don't. Um, you, the next fuel stop is, you know, 400 kilometers away or whatever. Um, so check your range on your tank. And if you don't get a jury can, um, and just, and you know, there will be dirt roads or I don't know, just something that's like, I know, I know sometimes when you're traveling along the highway, it'll show you, you know, the next fuel stop is this many Ks, but I just sometimes obviously hearing the, the frequency of these incidences that you're coming across is like how, why we need to, I don't know, maybe we need to start some kind of petition to get big uh, signs on the road to say like, you will not have like, Either have a UHF, but even then, if people aren't on duplex, you know, you don't know what channel other people are on. So you need a sat phone or a spot tracker or something. Like you will not have phone service. You will not have two wheel drive access. You will not have fuel. Like how is this not? Even I think even if you've got nowhere to we have, just go into your local BCF equivalent and just grab one of those little personal EPIRBs. Yeah. That'd be better than any if you didn't know what to get. But yeah, and you raise a good point and. Everybody, we've got a little email group that we started sort of last year coming out of this as of trying to find a way to stop people progressing past points when it's, say, most often when it's wet because people just want to get home and they don't listen, they don't understand where they get, what they're getting into, that we can't drive on some of our roads for five, six, seven weeks here. Um, and it's, it's mainly because it says it's a highway. People think you can drive there all the time as opposed to some sort of stations more north of us. But, yeah, so we're, it's, it's actually really quite productive in the Northern Territory Police and the Bully Police and then all the sort of tourists and stations um, through that deal with it. And we just all email and let each other know sort of really up to the minute or if there's something through there. And, yeah, we've sort of – um, as well as with the Northern Territory Infrastructure Group with the government. So they're all really helping to keep. And I, when anybody rings us with conditions, we just say, we'll check, you know, your government sites. We're updating them, you know, start there because people just don't even do something yeah. basic like that that is communicated. Um, but, yeah, we're sort of playing with looking out for grants or sort of working like Outback Way. They have good information on their website as well. You can imprint a map of your journey of that free. Yeah. Um, yeah, sort of like those are we there yet sort of signs that you see, you know, no phone range, you know, yeah. no services for this, you know, no fuel, just so um, people understand how far it is because they go, oh, it's only this far to – like even on the weekend they don't realise that most of the fuel stops shut on the weekend. We're not 24-7 like in the middle of – in the city and they're like, oh, what? You know, can't get fuel. Surely if I knock on your door at 2 o'clock in the morning, you'll come in. <laughs> even I got caught out with that a couple of weeks ago. I was heading from South Australia up the Streslecki track to Durham Downs, which is just in southwest Queensland, and uh, I'd be messaging. I was like, And I'd left one place and it was a 24-hour fuel stop, and literally the next fuel stop was in Aminka, and then Durham's like 150 from there. And I was messaging them. I was like, I'm just leaving this place now. I've just fueled up, which is, yeah, my last cho- thing. I was like, I'll just fuel up at Inaminka and then um, then I'll come like to you guys. And they're like, oh, no, you won't get fuel- – like it'll be shut by the time you get in because I was going to get there about 6 o'clock at night, and they're like, oh, no, it shuts at 5. And I was like, uh-uh. luckily I had enough just to like, I just drove real slow and like made it to Durham. And I was like, oh, even I know this. But yeah, not even, you know, you might be passing through somewhere. You think six o'clock, I don't know, pretty much everywhere else I've ever traveled, six o'clock, you can still get fuel. I understand like nine o'clock, eight o'clock, whatever. But yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have to start some kind of petition or something on Central Station. I mean, if people can spend, what is it like, how many billions of dollars to upgrade already functional and 
fine sporting equipment so we can have the bloody Olympics, <laughs> which I mean, I'm not like against or anything, but I'm like, how can you, how do we have all such, I don't know, things like that? And you can't even have basic signs out on the road to stop people from, from perishing. Yeah. Like, like it, it, there's, there's different programs that come up. I know that, you know, in Southwest Queensland, they had one that uh, has put quite a lot of signs up along their main traffic ways to educate vehicles to give way to road trains for example which is another thing a lot of people don't know that you've got to get off the road for that size truck which you still see is a big problem in here like there's there's that there but yeah like i inherently i don't believe people are trying to do the wrong thing but they just don't Don't know they just don't know or they don't realize the extent of what they're about to it's so different. To set off into yeah whether you're out of the city or even if you've grown up in a rural area driving around in yeah, rural Queensland, New South Wales, whatever. It's so different to to being out here. So Absolutely. anyway, yeah. So I just thought that would be a good way to start the <laughs> podcast. Life lessons, everyone. Let's summarize this into some life lessons. One, never leave your vehicle. That's right. Well, and well, maybe one. Oh, okay. These aren't in any order, so don't yell at me if I get them in the wrong order. But always have water, a lot of water. Like, I mean, it's you can go into Woolies and buy like a five liter thing like in the big plastic tub like have that so water never leave the vehicle do not trust google maps if you don't have a satellite phone which for a lot of people that's an expense because the subscriptions can be pretty hefty get a spot tracker or an epurb um and preferably you know i'm very lucky that when i travel i call like oh hey i'm leaving this town because i've always got somewhere to go and people are expecting me but if you're a tourist like you can't, it's not like somebody can go, Oh, hey, Tannis, well, you don't know me, but I'm leaving Bullion now. And you're like, What? Like, you'd get those calls all the time. But so have your spot track, your EPUB, let someone else in the, in the, in town know, like, whatever, say, Hey, I'm leaving Bullion. I'm headed to this station. If you don't hear from me within the next like 10 hours, can you call them and tell them to come look for me or something? Or, yeah, that's it. Cause there's no range, but like, we'll always, if someone needs to let someone know they're safe, we'll always, um, you know, let them use a phone to yeah. do that. So, um, and I think every stop along here would do the same thing. But if there's not a public phone available, but yeah, just let someone know the time frame that you should that they should be at the destination, so they can go. Oh, this person's not here, and work their way back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay. Well, well done. Now- well done. Safety step. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jane Jane Sale, who came up with Central Station, she's known as Safety Jane, and I am, yeah, I'm Safety Steph. We're pretty big on that stuff. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for the trauma of finding a perished person out somewhere. Like, no. I don't need – we all got enough trauma in our lives without adding that to it. So uh, we'll, we'll change um, tracks a little bit now, and I want to start off uh, by asking you what you were like as a kid, just to throw something out of left field. As a really little kid, I was – I have been told that I traumatized everybody. <laughs> really? That, yeah, I was a nightmare. Like, really? As a little kid, yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't think my parents went out by themselves until I was three, until I was three. And the one I remember I was one time they went out, we were left with mum's best friend and she had to ring the restaurant to get them to come back. <laughs> yep, I was not very – I still get told now, like, they're all oh, whatever they still tell me, that they thought that I'd be, end up dead because I was that naughty and I was just going to be one of those, you know, James – 27 year olds that perish because their life is so crazy. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked you this question because as people are about to find out, like these days, you are one of the most disciplined, incredible people I know. <laughs> so I love that you started off as like yep. a little rat bag. Probably not. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay. Well, that takes us to, um, to, yeah, this part about discipline. 
I so I don't actually know much about your background, but I do know that you spent time in the military. So tell me how that came about, what you did, and yeah, I guess how do you go from being a little naughty kid to I guess the opposite? Of, I can understand if your parents thought, oh, she's so naughty, so naughty, we're going to put her in boot camp, but you kind of put yourself in boot camp, literally. Yeah, no, like I um, I guess when we were quite young, we moved from the city to Strabroke Island. So I grew up on North Strabroke Island. And uh, when we moved there, we got involved with nippers. So pretty much my whole youth uh, was spent with surf lifesaving. And that's quite a – it's a structured sort of discipline. It's very volunteer-focused, obviously, but it's similar sort of um, entity, I guess, for want of a better word. And we also did, you know, a lot of volunteering clubs there, like I – I think I started work at 10, working as a helper to the old girls in the community centre kitchen, as you do on burger night. Uh, from there, I uh, went away to boarding school, as many did, because school finished uh, on Stratty at that time on grade eight. And then you had like either four hours on the barge every day, back when they took two hours each way, which dad wasn't a fan of. So yeah, I went away to boarding school. And when I finished that, I went to uni. I didn't, I swanned around for a year and then I changed degrees and did, um, yeah, changed, changed unis and degrees. So I went from UQ to QT and at QT I did a justice degree and, um, I was attended doing more subjects, majoring in the intelligence and security side. And I think at that time, as I was enjoying that and really liking it, you look for, careers sort of in that space um at the same time I had a friend I didn't put it all together but at the time he was an aerospace engineer and he's like man you should go to go to the defense force thing like they're sponsoring my my uni I don't have to pay anything I'm like oh sweet deal I didn't realize that's only for like engineers doctors and nurses (laughs) I'm like yeah they'll want me I'm a justice (laughs) um but I can say 100% I went into defense careers in Queen Street Mall it's not there anymore but it used to be big place at right outside of Central Station and um, I went in wanting to get on the same gig as he was and I somehow came out of there two hours later having applied for the Royal Military College and still to this day cannot tell you how I went from one thing to the other thing but yeah then just went through that process and just kept getting that sort of probably took nearly nearly a year I think from when I first went in to when it finished and it kind of finished I got the call up that I'd been accepted into Duntroon pretty much about three months before I finished uni. So um, I just went, oh, well, I'll go from there to there. And I really hadn't put much – I still really didn't. It was guys at uni telling me what I was actually applied for and letting me know what I'd got myself into. So I went in there really with no idea and no background or no thoughts of the military before I actually got there. So, so. had you just watched – is that – what's that Demi Moore? Is it like G.I.J.? No. Or, I don't yeah, know. She's been no. in a few movies or something in the military – I, but what, like, what, what did you do in the military? Like, are, are you, I guess it's like, it's so varied. When people think military, they think like you're going out on the front line and you're in combat or you're, I don't know, there's so many things. So, yeah, well, so I've done trains officer training. So I went in, do 18 months there training, and then uh, you graduate, hopefully, if you pass everything and do the right thing. So I did. Um, you graduate and, and you allocated cause. So you can put in cause to go to. Uh, which is specialties within that or um, but it's a bit of a roll of the dice like sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't sometimes you just get put where they need you 
Uh, and that happened to me. I wanted to go to Int, but a whole lot of people wanted to go to Int and I'd been a bit naughty. To go to, go to where? So? so Intelligence, so Intelligence oh, Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they, they only had like three spots and there was like eight people who wanted to go and on top of that I'd been a bit naughty, so I was probably down the bottom of that. Childhood um, coming back to bite you in the <laughs> yes. ass. And um, they put me in Ordnance Corps and I remember at the time I just burst into tears. I was like, oh, my gosh, because there's this joke about, you know, it's a bit of a visual joke, but it's like you hold your arm up and you go like, how much is this? And it's like eight blankets, so known as like blanket counters because warehousing is a component of that particular core. And I was just crying my eyes out going, oh, my God, all this for nothing. <laughs> I'm going to be a blanket counter. And um, But quite unfairly, I think they knew that that would be my reaction, but they gave me like the best job going, which was up in Townsville running the ordinance up there. So I was 21, I think, and sent up to Townsville. Um, three Basbit was at stage and had 90 people under me. And I think in my first week I had – and back when we used to do a lot more, I had a bloke who had three kids and he walked in and goes, I'm, I'm bankrupt, ma'am. What do I do? I'm like, I'll get back to you. And I'm like ringing up my mum going, he's a finance wizard. Mum, <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> but in the end, you know, what you did then was you took your, you know, their cards off them and they made a budget with them and then you got them back on their feet because it, it, it would look bad to have, you know, because you're all a family. So that was part of it. It's not like that now, but back then you did a lot more of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So what can I – I'm still not quite sure. What is the difference between – so if you enrol in Duntroon or the or enrol – so is that different to being like I'm going to enrol to go be in the Navy or the Army or the Air Force? Yeah. So Duntroon is more like you're kind of learning – like you, you're, it's a more like management of within sort of yeah. The military. So there's a couple of different streams. So you can go general entry to be a soldier. So there's like a, a soldiers, you know, your private corporal, lance corporal, warrant. They that's one stream, and their advancement through to warrant officer. And then when you get to warrant officer, you can jump across to be an officer too, but it's only at, at that level. Uh, and then you can come in in the officer stream. So there's two ways to do that. Uh, for the army, one is to be accepted into Duntroon and you do 18 months at Duntroon, or the other is to go to ADFA, which is the Defence Force University, and that's tri-service, so that's Army, Navy and Air Force. But the army graduates have to do, they do their degree at ADFA and then they've still got to come to Duntroon and do another six months specialist training at of army things at Duntroon and then, yep, they're off to be an officer too. So... Um, and Navy have got their different schools and um, and so does Air Force that are slightly different, but that's your, your general sort of core. Okay. So with what you had done, was there ever a chance that they were going to be like, Tannis, you're shipping out tomorrow to be based in Afghanistan or, I don't know, somewhere? Yeah. To, yeah. But ever, and like, going, like, did you learn like the combat things as well? Or are you like, you're more like organisational and like kind of – running the show that way. Yeah. Well, every every person in the army is taught your basic infantry skills. So that's what you do. So you could totally kick my ass right now. Well, you have to because, like, you might be in a really safe position but it might not be and you don't always have. But the difference is that we do that in a training. Everybody's done to the same level so you know how to use your weapons and you know how to do that basic part. 
and then you keep currency. So then you go off to your different streams. And so those of us who go off to like, oh, into ordnance or transport or anything, then do more specialist training in that area and your infantry skills, we call it. So your weapon handling and those sort of things become more competencies that you keep current with where people who join the arms corps, so your infantry, um, artillery, they specialize in that. So they do more weapons and they do more training and they're, that's their critical, yeah. more of that fighting part. So it's just everyone's got a basic level because of, you know, if it hits a fan, everyone needs to be able to do that job or back for some there. But, you know, there's no – there's specialists in that and there's people that just have it. So everyone's still got that basic training and that basic knowledge, but that's not our primary job. But the moral of the story is, like, at the end of the day, you're still a boss bitch who could kick my ass. That's where we're going with this, right? It was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Tanner's like runs every morning. You're pretty fit. you got muscles. And I'd be there going, like, is the safety on this gun? What? And I'm probably trying to, like, you know, move a bolt. And they're like, Steph, that's not a bolt action or whatever. And you'd be like, bam. So, but yeah, no, you'd but, kick but my but ass. The, I'd never seen a rifle for one. So that's the thing. Like, they teach. And, and that's probably the thing. And, yeah, and, and that's where as much as I got put in that really rubbish, what I thought at the time, core, I went to that job in Townsville and I had a great sergeant, Jacko Jackson, who they always say, like, you, you the officer you are is your first sergeant, and then I had had a great lance corporal called Finn, um, and they get all the they tweak you, you know, they get all the bumps out and teach you everything and give you lots of patience. and And my two are really great, and I've had really great people go through. But when I was in Townsville, um, East Timor happened, and that was the first major deployment for the Australian Defence Force for years, and so. I got exposure there and then I went to another job and it just, I would just had a unique sort of set of events, which then led that for the rest of my career, I did, um, logistics for deployable operations. So I specialized in getting lots of people overseas quickly and all their stores and things overseas quickly. So I got a lot of opportunity either in support to go to those operations or over as well. So it ended up being like the best career that I never would have thought I would have done if anybody like I couldn't imagine it because it came around but I really really loved it and I would have just you know I would have turned my nose up at it but it's sort of one of those sliding doors things it's just ended up really really good but yeah there's so much more to it um but yeah it's not for everyone I won't pretend that it is it's not all romantic or <laughs> anything like that but yeah it did suit me how long did you stay in the military for uh, 11 years. I'd probably, if I was honest, if I hadn't met Huey, I'd probably still be doing it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so I know Tannis is a little bit behind on listening to Central Station episodes, but if you'd listened to the last, like, I don't know, quite a few, you'd know, I always am like hitting up people to be like, how did you meet? What happened? So you've got to tell me, tell me about you and Huey. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Tannis is like, oh, really? My kids won't like this because it's not romantic. Oh, it was very, so I'd been overseas. Um, I had a friend. One of her best friends, Kirsty, she'd moved to – she's a police officer and she'd moved to Kunamala. And I'd missed the sort of group of friends go out trip. And so I'd got back from overseas and I was – I came from Sydney up to Kunamala back to Brisbane to see her on the way before heading off on a holiday. And, um, yeah, I was just the fresh meat in town, <laughs> in a town full of folks, and I'm sure for most people, you know, Friends, teachers, nurses, if any new, anyone's new in town at the pub at that stage. So, yeah, we just sort of 
met in the in the lineup of a few events that particular weekend and he couldn't believe that I was going to go and drop 10 grand on an overseas holiday and invest instead of investing it in some sort of capital that would give me some sort of benefit on a farm and I'm like yeah you're wrong um it, yeah and then we just sort of kept meeting up by um friends from that front but yeah pretty simple really <laughs> uh, and tell us a bit about Huey and where he's from and because I guess that meeting him really changed the trajectory of your life I guess it like you said it's like another sliding doors moment you know you never saw it coming and it, it really altered your course yeah so Huey's um when I met him and um until only recently really he was living and working on his family's property which is um south of Kunnamulla in southwest Queensland and so, yeah, for the first – I was based in Sydney, so for the first few years we just meet up halfway. Dubbo was our passion run, as we called it back in the day. Um, apparently I had all sorts of ailments that needed to be, you know, several hospitalisations and random things that got him away. Oh, okay. I was like, where is this going? Yeah, okay. yeah and there was like all these excuses why I had to go to Dubbo. Wow, this girl's high maintenance. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, then I got posted, yeah, I got posted up to Brisbane and, um, yeah, we just did the long-distance relationship for quite a few years, which suited us. Like, we both had pretty busy lives and only sort of limited time off, which suited how things sort of went. And then in the drought sort of period, here we come, lived in Brisbane for six months, but then um, just went off into different industry based in Emerald, at that particular time to try and bring some more farm income into uh, that side. And he ended up based in, I think all up, we ended up in central Queensland for about five years. He was a bit longer than me. And at that point I was at a pivotal point with military. I either had to take promotion and go to Townsville or I had actually lined up to go overseas for 12 months, but I would take that 12 months overseas or go on promotion to Townsville. And it was also that sort of pivotal one. So the the choice I made was basically to leave because all of the postings that I could do, he couldn't do anything there. And it, it's a it's a common choice for a lot of women in the military because it's very hard. Like unless you're, you're with a, like a moving job, generally like police or teaching or something like that or someone else in the military, it's, it's hard to find someone who can move continuously and work um, – in that area so it's it's not unusual I guess I was staring it down the line that if I hadn't end up with one of those sort of people that at some point I'd have to choose to leave so um yeah we had a big blue as it turned out I was really happy I got this overseas posting and turned up to a friend's reception where he'd been the best man and we ended up having this massive blue because he said I'm heading overseas next year and he's like no you're not that'll be it (laughs) so it was pretty it wasn't really planned that we had a big fight, but it sort of brought us to that point. And so yeah, I turned that down and then we, um, we, yeah, sort of put the process to leave. And then I, um, applied and got a job doing logistics at Darnford Bay Coal Terminal, which was, um, fantastic. They took me straight out of, out of the army bumps and all and great team there. And, uh, worked there for three years while Huey was doing all the bulldozer work, um, and then came back and did contracting, but it was a great, like it was a great time for us. Uh, we centered around Emma. We had fantastic and still are some of our best friends, Jack and Joss and Ross, and um, who 
who I still work for recently, but yeah, good friends and mentors and just really good group. And it, um, I think it's like one of our happiest times because we're, you know, out on your own, but it's just a really great place as well. And, um, sort of did that three years and then here we kind of got the call. Things are sort of changing. We've done mining bits and pieces and there was a number of different things. The drought had broken back at home and he was always having to go home regularly for mustering and that sort of thing. So we um, we sort of made – I was coming to a point where I could probably break out at work. I was running a computer thing at the time. And so we just made the call to go back to the farm because it would be easier and it was about that time. And I always knew that that was part of the relationship. Like you don't – He's based on that. So, yeah, where I was really enjoying and loving what I did, um, it was something I knew was coming. So it was always going to come at some point. So, yeah, we went back there at the like right at the end of 2010, back to Barragown. Yes. So, again, another another – I suppose it is a series of sliding doors moments that – you never really know where your life is going to take you. So you didn't expect to be in the military and then you're doing all these other things and then you met Huey and then you're in central Queensland. But then I suppose, like you said, you kind of had some foresight that it was coming that one day you guys might end up on the property. And Yeah, and like where I knew that, like I won't pretend it's it's still my my family weren't wrapped and they're probably still not, if I'm where, honest. Where are they from? Are well, they still on the island? Yeah, yeah. My dad passed away a couple of years ago, but yeah, they're in um, – in Brisbane, pretty much everyone, Huey's sister as well as um, my family are all there. But yeah, they're still based. So because all they sort of see is me giving up, you know, one successful career, then giving up another successful career to go to what? Yeah. <laughs> and I think anybody who's um, been in the same situation as me, their family is thinking exactly the same. Thing. I'm not going to lie. That was I, those thoughts were kind of running through my head, not in a judgment way, but just thinking like, oh, like. Yeah, there's been quite a few sacrifices there, but it's not that simple or that black and white um, no. at all. And I think you so, see, you know, you 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 love who you love, and um, but yeah, yeah. So that's that's, and you are obviously seeing a bit more of a lifestyle than there as well. But yeah, your your family, their number one job is protect you. So they're like, so what? What are you going? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, what are you doing with your career? <laughs> oh, I'll be fine. <laughs> How was just the? I guess the transition to to moving to the station or the the property and then also like, you know, so not just, so just you've got living remote and rural, but also having to do things like going mustering with a family or do all these other sorts of jobs that again, it's a completely new field for you and, and different. Yeah. And it's, it's strange as well. Cause I think you, you get put in a category unbeknownst to you as well. So you're kind of operating against something invisible that you don't kind of, I know, and I, I kind of found, like, right at the start, like, I remember one point we had to move. Something was wrong with the truck and we had to pick up the truck battery and I was right there and Huey went to turn to me and just went, oh, no, that's too heavy, and then went around and then came back with his sister to pick it up. And I'm like, I was so mortally offended. And I'm like, I carry more than that. <laughs> like, but, like, I was offended, but, you know, flip it around. It was that chivalry type of thing, like. You know, and his sister's in a different category as is his mum to me. And I'm like, I could lift that. And I guess um, I still find that frustrating now. That still happens now all these years later that, um, yeah, it's it's a strange, um, you know, I just turned up there and I don't – I've never really minded where I've lived as long as I've got something to do. I can make the best of anywhere. And obviously I've lived in a lot of places over the years. So um didn't worry me moving where it is, didn't worry me 
not having, you know, space, whatever. Um, we were based around the Nurma district in southwest Queensland, which is a fantastic, fantastic group of people and um, families there are really, really lovely. So um, there was a great network there to even so we were different. But a station there is, is different to like a station up here. Like you've really just got your family and you'll bring in a couple of contract musters usually to help you. Very few stations have permanent staff outside their family members and if they do it's maybe one or two um it's not big numbers even in the good times um which is not very often in that particular area um so that's probably the first sort of difference so there is a lot more family doing whatever but yeah like i didn't i didn't come to farm with any sort of stock skill or anything like that so there was little that i could offer and often i think you know they bought me there was a quad called Tannis and I'd ride Tannis around. I'm like, because I could, because I couldn't do anything. <laughs> so I'd be, I'd be pushing up the mob in the, um, with the Toyota, which is the other, you know, key position for those of us who couldn't really do much. But, um, yeah, so mustering wasn't, wasn't too much. But, you know, I, was, I had my job in the yards. So I figured I could, I was usually on the drench in the race and had the patience there for sheep that, didn't do because we didn't a lot of the time when we were there we didn't we had very few cattle there's only a few years when we had a lot just because most of the time um save the 10 years probably three of those were good years and the rest were drought uh so cattle work for me was limited to that but um but yeah we did a lot of sheep work and yeah i don't know I think I was always and still always trying to do something, but in that family thing, everyone's always got their job, you know, so I'd always be like, can I do something, you know, like the dog who wants to play, you know, <laughs> can I do something, throw it to me, throw it to me, and like, like, oh, you're right, you just, we'll be back at smoke, I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then once you've had a child, it's like people don't even talk to you then, it's just like, oh, they're at home, and so you just, but that's, you know, it's very lonely when you're there, you're just by yourself literally by yourself um who is working away a lot too so you know when we had Ali I spent most of that year by myself there um I got a little an old fella called EH in a caravan come and he came and stayed helped me with odd jobs and bits and pieces for most of that year but yeah like I I think I'm 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 an active person trying to do but in that in those sort of time it's like you, there's not a spot for you because we're there and I'd find that I'd get the most involvement is when we would have that contract staff um, come and stay because they're more used to working with and so you know whether a different chopper pilot or whether um, you know most um, Ty and his dad who used to help us um, we're at Barragown like they would be that that'd get you into a job or get you helping a lot more than that immediate one because it'd just it'd just be a different tone. So you know, I just learned to hang out for the the cool time. So, but yeah. And after ten years at Barry Gowan, you and Huey made the decision to leave, which you wrote a very candid and very popular uh, blog for our website about, which kind of it did somewhat go viral. And I think the reason is that aside from being so candid and honest, it touched on something that people really don't talk about or, or they we kind of really scatter around it. You kind of know it's there. It's like the elephant in the room, really. Yeah. Um, so do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, like and I, it's it's always a hard thing because you know that whatever you say, someone's going to probably take offence. Yeah, so I, I guess. I always, yeah, I always precurse anything I say about this. This is my opinion. It doesn't exactly. necessarily reflect Huey's or any of the other members of um, your family, but – yeah, so when 
when we went to Barragown, um, it was all of the family's part of it's a family partnership and all Huey and his sister there and and we were always sort of told Barragown is is Huey's and that's with him in mind and and that's sort of so in our minds that was at a some point at somewhere that would be what we looked after and and nothing firm not that we would own that on there but that would be ours to run um and so I guess when we were your classic where we weren't remunerated or anything and we're like oh you you know it it wasn't sort of mapped out so pretty much Huey sort of worked his whole life and then I joined and I came in and I did the books and did all those sort of jobs that um, you do for the entity and so all all in mind that you're working for the the greater good but and that's sort of fine but when it's then it starts to get pointy and it got pointy for us not when we had kids but probably a couple of years down the track when I guess for us as a family, we're going, well, how are we going to be in a position to send our kids to school and be in this position in a few years' time and how do we prepare them? So for us, we needed some security in where we were or what we were going to be doing as like a family entity um, in that space. And I think, look, we we did many different things and I can only thank, you know, people lisa lonsdale has been a great friend to us in even supporting us but we did things with her without her we did things with bangman you name it whatever we kind of did wouldn't kind of stick um and so it got to like we were just getting really frustrated and i guess from a personal level it was just dominating huey and i's lives and we didn't really feel like we were progressing and i sort of made um uh, we had an opportunity in 2019 um, as I said, my friends and Jack and Justin Ross offered me a contract needing to do some work up there. Our sheep were all in adjustment in Dolby at that point, so that's where our stock was. And Huey, there was a commercial pilots course all available at the same time. It all just seemed to work because the stock was down there. He could check on the stock. I managed to get a caretaker to look after what was left at Barragown. Um, so it all just kind of worked. So he went, great. So I took the job and went up there with the kids. Huey went and did his study. And anyway, while we were there, um, Huey's family decided to sell Barragown and they didn't actually discuss that with us before it went on. And that I found really, really hurtful. And it's their decision. You know, I'm not part of that thing. But at the same time, we'd been living there and building that property as our own is where we're going to live. And so um, – and I still find that really upsetting. As much as I'm past it, it's um, – for a long time was our home, was a kid's first home sort of thing. So, yeah, and I guess at that point it was it was kind of real and I said, like my heart, Huey and I were just sort of, well, what do we do? And, and he, we, he, I said, you just focus on finishing that. But I know I then spoke to – because it had never been spoken about, but I needed to talk to someone about what was happening because I just went, what the heck, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? And, yeah, the few people I spoke to, and at that point now, as I, I said in the article, like I, the first person I had to talk to was the kids' school liaison because I didn't know if we were going to go back to that school and where we should go or anything like that, and she was really kind and told me a story of her family very very similar situation and and just gave me encouragement that whatever our choice is doing that the fact that you're at this point 
a bit earlier than most that you'll be okay you'll, you'll it'll work out because we didn't really know what we were doing at that stage um but yeah there's there's so much you know there's so much emotion and and things and said and unsaid and in a family situation because no one wants to upset anyone. And when you've got kids as well, you don't want to feel like kids can't talk to grandparents or anything like that. And so, you you know, it's – and I know in our particular situation, um, nobody wanted it to be that no one's talking to each other. Um, so trying to kind of manage that when you're also really upset and feel really betrayed and, and all these other emotions but just trying to go, well, let's let's get – Let's just get through where we're going to do and figure out what we're doing. So, um, yeah, we had a bit of a discussion about what we did. So obviously I could have – we could have just left and could have gone and done stuff where I'm working back in my sort of career flow and who is working in theirs. But we kind of both agreed that we'd like um, the kids to stay on a farm and have that – start in life before they went away to boarding school and that would be sort of our next point in our family like when they both went away well then we'd see what we did then and and a lot of you know I'm pretty versatile I can go back and I could come back to that work and same with Huey we could go back to that at any stage so we made the decision to have a look at sort of managing somewhere but in a different area so we could Huey could fly having just sort of He'd flown privately for years, but in that commercial sense, so where he could fly and where we could go and learn sort of new farming and, and new practices and, and bigger scales. So, um, yeah, so we just sort of made the call out. <laughs> As I said, I rang you and we just rang people that we knew. We spoke to good friends, um, Steve and Tanya Gilligan as well and just got advice and you know do you think we could do it and got great support from them and, and we still get great support from Steve and Tanya I have to say um, and and their family they've got their girls as well yeah so we we applied and I think um, Huey gave me a phone number to ring he'd left a message and when I rang it I was in the Emerald at that time it came up that it was a Blackwater number and so I said Huey I said this is a Blackwater number I'll just drive over there <laughs> and then he's like oh well, I'll fly up and then we'll both go over. So, yeah, it was we drove over there probably the you know the end of the week that we rang up and um, I think it was just it was obvious to me and I, I often say like as Huey drove through the driveway and saw it's like a couple of bits of machinery and then walked up the front stairs of the place. I think he knew that he'd found without even really talking to anyone he'd sort of found a good fit for him. Um, there was like a D11 and some trucks and a plane in the hangar and he just went Sold. All, all his favourite things <laughs> and then obviously we met um, we met most of the Speed family that day and had a bit of a chat and um, yeah we sort of I think um, he yeah it was pretty pretty good at that point we just sort of went oh well, it's not just us so we've got the rest of the kids and Denise our guy who's um, pretty much part of our family that stage we couldn't couldn't think of doing anything like this without her on board so she we'd, we'd left her at the Blackwater pub while we <laughs> while we went off for a would only be gone for an hour or so anyway four hours later we got back poor old Denise was staked out at the pub for that time but um assured me it was it was a good afternoon and um yeah we came up and had a look at the station we flew probably three weeks yeah, three or four weeks after that, 
and had a big look around and um, met the rest of the family that we hadn't met and yeah and I think took the job pretty much after that. Before we talk about continue to talk about your time here at Tobermory Station, which is where we are today, I just want to come back to this uh, topic of succession planning because it is so rare to find someone that is willing to talk about it. And the thing is, like, it's it's such a common occurrence. I think possibly more on obviously there's more farms and properties in Australia than there are stations, but. More and more these days, stations are corporate owned. You know, they're not family, like there's, there's still family owned ones out there, but the, it is, so for a lot of people, this may not be something they've experienced if they're out on stations, but we have an audience right around Australia. And, um, I get these, you know, I wish I could say that your story is something that I haven't heard before, but it is, but usually it's over, you know, a cup of tea around the table or, in the, uh, you know, driving around in the U, but usually it's, it's only if somebody really knows me and they trust me. And like people are so, t- and fair enough, nobody has to share anything. But I just, I suppose I, I'm not really sure what, what we do from here. I know there's been, there was a lady, Alison, I'll, I'll link her in the show notes, Alison. I want to say like Laird. I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. She did a, um, a Nuffield scholarship a couple of years ago on succession planning for large pastoral properties and, or just properties. Um, and there's, there's a lot of people are talking about it these days, but it doesn't really seem to be gaining much traction. And I've only really come across two or three cases where people have spoken openly about successful succession planning. And one is, um, I have this, I call it my adopted family in America and they're on a ranch in Nebraska. And in the last like five years, so they've got three kids, but one, one, the eldest has always stayed on to work at the ranch. Um, and in the last five years, like the dad, the mum and dad have been like selling their cows to their son. Like he's been buying more and more of the herd. I don't know how they're going to do the, the actual land asset sale because that's the rules over there are a bit hectic and land valuation and whatnot, but like, each year and the dad, you know, he's only like 60, I think when he started, but he's like, you know, it's, it's my time to give him a turn. So he like let his son make more and more of the decisions, buying more and more of the herd. Like he owns like just a very small amount of the herd now that he's been there his entire life. He grew up on that ranch. And I was like, wow, like that is so like, that's a big thing. Like, and you, and, um, I heard another story a couple of months ago about someone who, they had, there was a brother and a sister and the sister went off to work somewhere and the brother stayed and worked on the farm his whole life or property and um, didn't really draw much of a wage or anything like that. And I guess that's the other thing that is an issue that really needs to be talked about is that if you're not drawing a wage, you're more than likely not getting superannuation, which is a big, like, big red flag. Um, but then when it came time for the the, the father to um, – do what he wanted to do with the property. He split it equally down the middle with the two children. Um, and the son had been under the assumption, and that's what a lot of people, it's just this, this assumption that, well, I've been working here my whole life. You know, yes, maybe my siblings will get a bit of it, but surely all the wages I haven't drawn and all the time I've spent here will see it not divided equally. Um, and it, and, and I'm not saying that it's right or wrong and that it shouldn't have been split equally. Like everyone's got to do what's right for them, but, I just 
yeah, I suppose a lot of it comes down to, like you said, it's taboo. No one wants to talk about it. There's these assumptions of, oh, I just work here or this is what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, a business, so the business is separate from the land asset. You can't assume anything and you never know what people are going to do. And, and I think what really stood out to me in your story that you wrote for our website is that if you like, you know, what financial, financial security do you have? Like if you don't, so I suppose some of the, the I don't know what I'm wanting to ask you really, like maybe it's about some of the lessons you've learned or advice to other people. Yeah. And like it, it is hard and it is very complicated every, every, and it is generally a family thing unless there's another asset, a, you know, stock asset or something like that. And I only know what I know. Um, yeah. You know, and that's through people who've shared their stories with me and then me trying to, you know, talking to people and talking to professionals. But I think probably the, the biggest thing about your your technical succession planning and you, you trying to encourage people to do that is that they think um, it, it's picking the right fit for your particular family. So if everybody's in agreement, you want to go and do some of that deeper planning where it's mapped out a little bit more, is finding, you know, there's a million one consultants, banks do it, agribusiness people do it, finding the solution and the level of depth that your particular family is ready for. Um, you know, a few friends have had someone come out and they've done like three or four solid days of it, which has burned everyone out. And they had taken down the path of the consultant rather than what the family kind of wants to get answered. And it hasn't been successful or they haven't stuck to it. Um, so I think is finding, finding the level of conversation that you're at. But as I said in my article, I, I think it's a conversation that's got to happen early. And I know, if, like in my mind, there's a few families that have done it well. And if even if you don't know, like have that conversation early. Like a lot of parents at the moment or people in the controlling have been have been passed on. So in a property where the firm, where the property has been passed on and passed on, passed on, there is an expectation that that will be passed on again. So um, if you're in that particular scenario. Don't expect that that will happen because it's it's a choice of the people in control at that point in time, not just because it's happened before, it'll happen again. Um, so that's, I think, the first assumption mistake, and we made made that mistake. Um, the next one is just understanding what you want. You know, it's a it's a conversation. Like I said, if if there's nothing else, have that conversation, and it might do be with the kids and whatever. And whether it's mum or dad or an uncle or brother or sister, like there's different controlling entities. So it's not always, you know, mum, dad and kids. It could be two, you know, two brothers. It could be, you know, one sibling and one parent, whatever. But it's like, what's your intention? Is your intention to pass this on to us or divide it equally or in thirds or not pass it on at all and work there until you, until you pass? or you're unable to work it, and at that point is when you're going to pass it on. And I think that is a key thing because there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with any of those answers. They're all absolutely acceptable. But the difference between saying to someone in, when they're 25, oh, I'm going to pass this on to you, son, daughter, grandkid, when I'm 70 versus I'm going to pass this on to you when I'm 40 or 50 is a lot of years of unpaid work. You know, I don't think anybody 25 would think that they're going to work in something unpaid with no control 
until they're 55. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong if you have chosen to do that, you know, but if to say to the longer in a family entity that people are dragged along without any sort of security or any sort of wage or any sort of it's is not fair, I don't believe, to to whoever aren't contr- who who isn't controlling that. Yeah. Because firstly, if you can't if you're paying if that family member wasn't there, who would you be paying to do the work? You'd be paying contract masters or you'd be paying a chopper pilot, whatever in your particular you know, harvesters, whatever your particular situation is. So if you can pay that to people outside, well, why can't you pay that to your own family members? So if you haven't, and I find that if you're not ready to make a decision, at least if you're paying remuneration to that family member, if it breaks down and nothing ends up happening, at least they've been paid. They've got some financial security. They've got a wage. They've got income. And and people forget, like, when you've been part of a family entity and you don't exist, like a lot of kids who've grown up on properties that are parts of family trusts and similar entities, if they've got no individual standing, they find themselves, you know, 20, 30, 40, wanting to go and get a loan. They don't exist as an individual. And then all of that family bank, you know, all the family business income is considered as part of their person. They, they can't even exist individually if they want to. Um, so it's, while you're still part of it, it's really hard to not be part of it, even if you don't want to. So that's part of the reason that you still keep trying to make it work in some of those. But it's just a conversation. And I think um, parents, the control, I say controlling entity because it's not always parents. It's a lot of different ones. So whoever's in control of that entity need to kind of be the manager will be the controlling entity and have a decision in their mind. No, we never want to leave this property until we die. Yes, we want to leave it when we're 60. No, we want to divide it equally between the three other people that have been working here. You know, it's you've they have got to come to the table with what their expectation is. And it, it doesn't have to be any more detailed than that. You know, for a lot of people, that's enough. Just having that decision point going, right, well, I'm happy to stay here because, you know, we've agreed on that at, at this age point or at this date, then we'd be brought in or, you know, look, it, it's, it's got to be both parts. It's not like if the, if the kids or the brothers or the sister, whoever's asking the question, the, the people in control need to give their expectation. They can't just say the older, oh, well, the seasons change, you know, well, maybe in a good season, maybe in a bad season, there'll always be another season. Oh, maybe when we get through the next bank review, we'll do that. Like there'll always be something. There's never an end point. So, you know, both halves have to have an expectation and at least talk about that. And I think if that's, that's that early, that lets people make a choice because I know I, that's how I feel. I feel like I've wasted 10 years that I could have been working. If I And I, I feel that there was never, personally, I feel that there was never an intention to have us any further apart than what we were, which was working on that property but working like off farm or getting an income that led us to survive sort of um, through external. So I worked for council and a range of different things while I was on Barragown and Huey would go away and work as well. Um, I think that was at that point what what was thought was going to happen for for ages, Uh, but it wasn't communicated. And 
you know, one could argue we could have seen that too, which may be true, but we also had in the back of our minds, Barragan's yours and that's with you and mine. So it, it's just so complicated. Do you, um, do you think I've just had this thought pop into my head? Cause yeah. So for the most part, for what we hear, succession planning with the controlling entities, whether they be parents or whoever else is avoided like the plague. Do you think it's cause if you, I was just thinking about this now, like if you sit down to do your succession planning, it's kind of, um, acknowledging, uh, and maybe this is me just projecting my own internal fears onto this, but it's acknowledging that like, Hey, I'm kind of coming to the end of my life or it's not that far off or I am going to die one day and I'm not going to be here forever. And I wonder if a part of that avoidance is people are just like, Oh no, I'm not going to get old. I'm not going to die. Like, cause that to think about it, like, it's almost like, you know, if you say, okay, I'm, my kids are taking over now. And then you're like, shit, what do I do? And Oh my God, that actually means I'm old. And I'm going to die one day. Like, I wonder if that, I'm sure that I know there's so much that goes into it, but that's just popped into my head that I wonder if that's part of the avoidance. I think absolutely that would be it. I think also, especially if um, the way, you know, the the person coming in doesn't manage the business or must are the same. Like if there's a difference in management, that's to, it's a control thing as well. And sometimes that might be founded in, in, great evidence but it doesn't mean that um you couldn't say well right i don't think you've got strength in this area so for you to do that you need this sort of support or assistance or training or something like that and instead of just avoiding it finding a pathway to make that successful um but yeah obviously it's a bit of that it's it's the the younger generation coming through going well i need security it's the that generation going well I don't know if I want to relinquish control. It's my security as well. Um, am I ready for change? Like a lot of just like that person, they've been on that property their whole life and that like it's it's this so many ups and downs, but it, at the end of the day it doesn't change. You know, as we sort of look, if you've got, like if you were in business and this is the sort of thing, like if we were in business and went, how, how about I offer you this cracking job? You can do a 10-year contract with no no wages, um, you can take sort of drawings from farm, but they'll be deducted from your final severance package uh, and no holidays, no, um, you know, but we will take care of your power and you, that sort of thing. So you get this, you get a house and whatever. Um, but, yeah, no super, no wages, no financial sort of security. So pretty much you can live there for 10 years or 10 years, 15 years or 20 years, whatever your particular thing is, like there's, there's absolutely no way you would do that in a commercial sense. So why are so many of us doing it? And I think we do it for so long thinking that. Because you don't think that's going to be the outcome though. Yeah, you think, oh, well, one day, one day, one day. But I would say, you know, I, I sort of look at that magic five years, like if that two to five years, if you haven't progressed in whatever your personal business family and sometimes it's multiple families it's not just one there's you know families on families if at the point that it needs to happen like if there hasn't been some sort of discussion progression that five years then then just walk away or go and get your wages off calm because the longer the longer you do it the longer it will be taken and the longer it'll make it harder to walk away because you're you as a person is ingrained in that operation. It can't operate really without you, without a huge cost. And, you know, it, it all too much knowledge of that generally because they're family-based. 
gives you so many more reasons not to go and do it and so much more guilt to walk away than it would be if it was a straight-out commercial enterprise. So, yeah, like would you would you do what you're doing commercially? Probably not. So, you know, why keep doing it? You know, it's fine to give it a try, but, yeah, I think there's far too many there's far too many stories and that was what was shared. No one talks about it, but there's and, – and the sad thing is is the outcome – ends up being not positive. You know, it's either families don't talk to families or there's a big blue or there's court actions and court cases and and, and that's what it leads to. So, you know, having that conversation 10 years earlier, as it's as simple as let's talk about what we're going to do here. Yeah. This is what I'd like, this is what I'd like. And it might just start off like that and then you try it again, like but just being frank and what you want from the entity that you're involved in with the other people that have a vested interest in it is fair. Um, you know, and, and, and you might not resolve it, but at least the knowledge of what everybody else wants lets you make an educated decision for yourself. At least you and know where end, you stand. That's it. The decision is is yours. It's not anyone else's and no no – no choice that you've made is anyone else's fault but yours. But if each person in your business has got the benefit of that information, then each person's able to make an educated decision about where they want to be and their, and their future, which they deserve to, I think. I think a great analogy that you uh, shared when we were driving out to stock camp last week was that this topic is, is kind of like what IVF used to be about, like, you know, or fertility problems. You know, it was something that people didn't really discuss and that it wasn't until you kind of said something to your friend that they would kind of – you'd find out how common it was. And now I feel like fertility problems is something that is quite openly spoken about. Still still a little bit of a stigma or a hush-hush, but it's certainly a lot more openly spoken about. Um, and the stigma is dropping away, and I can only hope that in years to come it'll be the same way with succession planning. Yeah, and it's in mental health, all these, all these things, and it, and strangely, um, yeah, and and they, I can hear fertility come out. And my husband just go, "Oh my god, how did you bring that into this conversation?" <laughs> um, but they're all things that are really hard to deal with when you're in a rural remote situation. They're all things mental health, whether that they're all things that are hard to access services. And that sort of thing, and then they're all things, especially if you're in a and a role of responsibility. That if you're struggling with, and you share that with your close thing, it's seen, it's still seen, and that's the transition that it's a flaw or it's a yeah crack. a weakness, yeah, yeah. So you know, and that that may or may not change, but what can change is your ability to access those things and knowing there's all these supports, so you can go and find that in in your wider community, yeah. And have some tools to tackle it yourself, which I think is absolutely changing. And, um, you know, mentorship programs and, and knowing that there's someone next door that you can talk to or, or something like that, especially on these sort of things is like, is essential because it's, you don't know what you don't know. You know, it's a favorite sort of saying because, and because of that, you also don't know all the support out there or people that can help you or information or advice that, that can make you make, um, give you access to information to make better decisions. Um, yeah. No, thank you so much for speaking so candidly about this. You know, like I said, it's few and far between that you can find someone to have this conversation and yet it's something that will pretty much every family enterprise in the country is going to go through at some point in time. So the more that they can hear, yeah, 
that hopefully the less people will have to have a similar experience. Um, so your experience has brought you to Tobermory, which is where we are now on the NT, um, I was about to say NTWA, NT Queensland border. And it's a fascinating, uh, the map, like Tobermory is like just one big kind of like, it's like the letter I, like it's just one big long, I've never seen a station in this shape before. <laughs> It it's is. how how do you know how long it is from end to end? It's well, we don't technically have a southern fence, but the about one hundred and twenty kilometers long, yeah, yeah, about forty on average, sort of wide. Yeah, so. it's just like this big rectangle. It's hectic. Uh, what is you know? So that's was it end of twenty nineteen that you came here? Yeah. So about a year and a half, coming up on two years by the end of this year. What's it been? I mean, that's a loaded question. What's it been like? <laughs> How are you adjusting to territory life and, and station life? You know, you've gone from, a, like you said, a small family place that you don't have staff and the, the occasional contractor. And here, the crew is massive. And not only that, but Tobermory is you can get fuel. There's a little shop. There's a tyre repair and a, and a caravan park so people can, you know, between basically Bullier and Alice Springs, you're one of the stations that offers that. So you have just got people coming out of your ears. Like, they're everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's um, it's been <laughs> it's been entertaining because yeah, there's no kind of playbook for for that either because we've um, when we first came out in September, the the caravan park had two cabins. Well, we was there was still a lot of work. Um, speeds had started the work, but to recover after the floods in 2019. So Tobermory, like most people have seen on Facebook, was hit pretty hard by that, and there was a huge amount of. Um, clean up work the crew did sort of between May and when we got here and then. And so was that, sorry, just checking, that's, so we're, even though we're quite far south in yep. the scheme of things, this was water that came from, you know, when it was like a couple of weeks or days, just nonstop rain up around like Julia Creek, Honkari or something, you know, like I remember seeing that. Yeah, and at the same time you had um, Bettine Beef, you had so all that Queensland northern rain, but yeah. it didn't make the news as much. But those couple of cyclones came in from WA at the same time, so the rain around the region was just solid. And then here they'd had rain, and then uh, in the particular uh, time frame, obviously I wasn't here then, but as it's been <laughs> explained to me, they had six inches of rain on top of constant rain on top of an overland flood. So the Georgina River is around here. We've got Paturi Creek, which circles the homestead. So where they have had floods before and expecting I think it was just a whole lot of rain. There was a levee bank around here, but it just it just couldn't handle um, the amount of water. And, yeah, one of the chopper pilots was not ours but was flying over and went, oh, that water's moving a lot faster than it probably would. And he came back and let the station know and they got people out. But, yeah, it was very quick sort of big rise and, yeah, over a couple of days and, yeah, um, yeah, I'm speaking out of school because I wasn't here, but, yeah, most of the guys were taken over to Manners Creek, which is just next door, and they helped us out. They got flooded as well, but not as bad. A few stayed here, but pretty much everything here got went underwater except the top level of one of the houses, which is a two-storey place. So every building got got taken out. So, yeah, the guys had a pretty serious show to, to clean up. Once yeah, and so you kind of came in on the tail end of that. Yeah, so everything had kind of been picked up and um, I think at that stage it was still very much in the insurance and what do we, where do we sit? So by the time we got here uh, in November, uh, the speeds had formed a plan and so our job was just to take over from um, Ben and his wife Emily who'd been sort of managing until we got there uh, and they lived here 
primarily with um, with their cousins sort of looking after it recently. So, yeah, they got all the tradies started and everything and then just did the handover takeover because I think they'd been here solidly for seven or eight months at that stage, so they were ready to go home. Um, and, yeah, so that took us, like, it took with all the building and things, we got the last of the trade things finished, I think, the first week of June in 2020. But we also, um, the family decided to grow the caravan park as well. So they'd been like a caravan park and there'd be two units, but now, which housed eight. Uh, and I think at that point in time, it we grew so we could house 20 people in cabins. And so we finished, I think, the work with everybody. Um June of 20, like Monday or the Tuesday, and as we know, COVID hit. So oh, yeah. over the course, it, it it affected, it was it was quite a challenge, I think, anyone in the Territory, but also more so for the stations like us that were on the border because we were hit by all these crossing rules and restrictions on food and that sort of thing. But we, um, the guys that were here were really good and we had, you know, every station sports days with just the rest of the team and... Um, Everyone sort of bunked in. So once we got through the challenge of supplying <laughs> food to us, it wasn't too bad. But when the Queensland border checkpoint shut down, then the Territory opened one up here. And so they were based here from the end of that week of June uh, through. And we'd had, we also had living with us at that stage friends of ours, um, Danny and Kerry Gurler, who came for a two week visit that got stuck because they live in WA got turned around at Hearts Range got sent back. So that happened in April. So they were here until November as well. Holy so, hot box. Yeah, so Danny's a very talented builder. So he got <laughs> he got busy doing a, along with the other tradies here. So we, it was trade central. But, yeah, so everything kind of got sorted out just in time. And so for the second half of 20, 2020, we had eight border checkpoint here pretty much on top of our regular crew. But um, I guess, yeah, so – and then this year it's the sort of same. We've grown a little bit more. The station's changed a lot just in that short period from when we sort of turned up here. And I don't think anybody really – I don't think the speeds knew that. It's just sort of been a series of opportunities and events that sort of gone on the way. So, you know, it'll probably be another couple of years till we figure out what's regular here. <laughs> Because uh, even this year we thought COVID, but here we are again with a lot of people being shut down. But yeah, like it's a big crew here, but I like it. I I sort of um, I think the really great thing about being a manager or a senior staff on a station, and I say senior staff because we've got um, you know, Simon, our senior staff here, Simon Milesy and Goodies, and nobody's also one of our senior guys. Um, you've you've got a role. And responsibility is the first boss. You know, you're the first boss to all these young people, like people in their first jobs, people who come from bad jobs or, you know, all different places, but this is their big – usually it's a start of a new adventure or a pivotal point in life. So you, you get to be that person or those people to them and create an environment where they're loving life and it's not, it's not even – it's learning new things and – teaching them skills you haven't got. And we've got, you know, our crew this year, we've got tradies, we've got operators that come with a lot of skills as well. So it's creating an environment where they're learning and, and feeling um, valued as well as us learning and, and getting skills from them and having it go both ways. 
But, yeah, we've got a pretty big crew. So most of the time we're sort of 15 to 18 all the time. Um, and then, yeah, at the minute where we've got stock camp and everything here, we sort of go between 35 and 45 for those few months of the year. What about the experience for you? Like, I mean, this has all been a, a huge new experience, but just how are you feeling in life, you know, personally, professionally, if I may ask, obviously with the the trouble, well, not the trouble, but, you know, what you've come out of in the past. Um, I've heard you say like, you know, I've been here for 10 days and you've spoken quite highly of the owners, which is the Speed family, um, and just about the working relationship you have with them and, you know, it seems like you're in a bit of a different headspace and that you've kind of found, I'm, I'm so glad, it's such a relief that, because, you know, this is the first job you've taken after leaving the family place, that it's actually worked out really well because it might not have. So I, I just, yeah, whew, thank goodness. Yeah, like absolutely. And that's the that's a dice you roll. I think everyone who comes to Northern Australia rolls that dice. Like very few even get to go and look at the station before they turn up to, and, you know, even our young fellas go, well, I was prepared to just turn right around if I drove in the driveway. I think, I think everybody, no matter what position is in uh, that one, no, look, I think we have been supremely lucky, if I'm honest. Um, we've been very honest too. You know, we're, we've come out of that where we're probably wanting to be involved, not so much in how, but be involved in the decisions made for here while we're living here, um, as well as being very honest where we've come from and, and the position sort of where we're in. And, um, and we, you know, where we're here, we work for, so Ben and Emily are our, who son and wife um, are our direct managers and John and Margie who are the patriarch of of the family are over everything but we probably work closest with those two and Goodie is obviously on our team as a pilot but he goes in between and Jack as well so the family spread um, that working in the pastoral side 24-7 is spread across but yeah we probably work closest with Ben and Emily and John and Margie and yeah, they've been really good. They've, they've been really receptive and I think quite forgiving of some of the, the bumps along the way. Um, they're very, um, I know Huey feels very at ease and, and being able to pick up and where he's, you know, he's got a lot of skill sets where, uh, where he's got things and they've been really great in sort of, like I said, those bigger herds and some of those bigger things. He's been able to sort of jump into that and, um, get going. And also he's been able to bring, what he's bought and they've been really great in giving him an opportunity to do that farm. For me, I'm obviously stuck here a bit more in the events of, of the last two years. No one could dream up and, and what's going forward and, and we've grown and, and yeah, like I, any, any sort of, there's been heaps of latitude and a lot of understanding and, and I, I think a genuine commitment to work through whatever gets thrown at this place. Cause it's, it's always varied. Um, and, that any sort of bumps are dealt with pretty openly and 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 work through so that it doesn't keep affecting which is a really it, it sounds like a something to sort of blow smoke but it's not really it's a, it's an important skill to have because as we all know like if something isn't dealt with and it festers and and everyone gets upgrades so they put a lot of um importance on making sure that happens and and so we try and um, we all work together on that front and yeah it's very family orientated as well so the kids can pretty much 
cut sick no matter what and they never get in trouble <laughs> which they're loving um and yeah so we yeah we're pretty we're pretty happy i think we've i think um we've, we've been very very lucky yeah where we found ourselves on the first roll of the dice yeah and like anything i suppose you know not that you need to disclose but i can only assume like nothing you know while this is a great environment you know nothing's perfect and i just want to put that across to people because we did have a conversation uh about how there is there is an industry publication out there um you know written and audio that kind of makes every country life seem really really rosy all the time that we spoke about and that you know like the effect you know it's almost like the farmer wants a wife effect that country life is so blissful and you know i'm baking these beautiful smokers and you know out feeding my potty calves and life is great and then there's actually another um industry publication or, or media entity that kind of tells rural stories as well but it's all like doom and gloom and like life is so hard and I'm struggling and I'm isolated and both of those things are true but it just seems like they each kind of focus on their like they have their niche and I think um so just you know let people know that you know obviously we spoke about the hard times and then you're in a good place now but I'm sure it's not perfect but what I've kind of picked up from you and from being here is that you know like you know where you stand you know um you have this communication you you kind of know where you're going you you know like we said like nothing's nothing's ever perfect but it's it's and it will take years I'm sure you know to settle in and get a routine and whatever but for something I don't know how to what I'm trying to articulate here just that I I just didn't want it to be like oh yeah we moved here and like life is perfect all right like but I'm not saying that it's the opposite but like just that it's yeah, what am I trying to say? Yeah, no, because Can you please fix my words? <laughs> no, because I think it, it, it's a thing that I'm kind of passionate about in a way. And I think I find that as I get older as well because I – and I've, I forgot the name of the other I read a story on Central Station. By, oh, Courtney. By Courtney. And I just went, oh, my gosh, I so know where you're coming from and how I felt at that. And she seemed really sad at that point. And I, I could feel that because I'd, I'd been there – years early at a certain point and and I was very proud of her for putting that down and it would have been the same sort of struggle when you write a story where you're having a tough time um and especially in a a family situation you you sort of brace yourself for the repercussions of that but it doesn't make it any different she was still having a tough time and continues to and I think when you read magazines whatever and everyone's you know got floral arrangements on their breakfast table is they have look like they've come out of country style magazine and they have holidays and they you know whenever they want and you know they've got seven businesses running online and and as well as perfect instagram six kids at school and you're just like oh my gosh like i've got two kids and or no kids or oh my oh can't gee. even get pants on them actually that's not true I've, your children have worn pants the entire time i've been here <laughs> yeah. but you know what i mean that's, that's a summertime gig yeah um, it's really easy to go oh, gosh, I need to do more then. When most, nearly every person I know is doing way more than that. And I think, you know, and and it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you're a person out on the ringer side. And I I, I have this problem with the house the house lady and the, the outdoor lady. Like you don't have to do everything, but Sometimes you do. Sometimes that's your job. You do have to be across a lot of things. And I think people just need to not look negatively at 
people doing that. That's just how they're doing their job as best they can. And, um, you know, a lot of the time if they're under pressure, they realise that and they might just need a bit of help how to make that a bit less noisy. Um, and I know I'm one of those people. Like I just – it's a hard work thing. It's the multiple it, – it's been in me for ages, so it's easy for me to take a lot on. And I'll just triage stuff away and just – that doesn't need to be done. And so it's a conscious effort to – to make my life less noisy. But, yeah, when I walk up into my house, like I'm keeping all these hotel units and the highest thing and I walk up into my house, which you can attest to, and it is a pit of despair. I'm like, no. I look at it, I'm like, oh, my goodness, like how can this be? It's a, you know, and then you flick open one of those, man, you listen to, you know, podcast sex or whatever. I'm like, that's just not possible. Like farmer wants a wife, I say. That is a lie as yeah. well, you know. No one's going to put a candle in a hay shed. Oh, like, did you, the, on. one of the episodes this year, like they fully did up a wool shed and I was like, huh? oh, and there was one girl, she had like a little dinner outside with the with the farmer, like they had a one-on-one date. She was like, oh, I could get used to eating outside every night under the stars. And I was like, yeah, no, that maybe like if you've like been worked until like d- literally in the darkness and then that's when you're going to be eating yeah. under the stars. And look, and hats off, like I, I absolutely hats off to all those women that can do all of that. Yeah. It's, it's not about saying that's the wrong thing, but it's more about saying there's so many different shades of grey between the person that is there accomplishing all those things in that particular media, which is getting a lot of media. I think that's a thing that really glossy Insta life is getting Side a lot of media, and it's a bit and- like you know the movie star can do that because sometimes they have the chef and the thing, and, and it's not. You know, there's probably a team of people that make that so glossy, um, just like there's a team here and it's not so glossy, but it's not any less important or full-on or joyful or sad, like it goes through that thing. And, and I guess to say for us, leaving leaving where we were is a really positive thing. It's positive for us and I would say it's possibly really positive for Huey's family as well because it's done and dusted. It would have been really stressful for them as much as it would be has been for us. I can't not think that that would be for them as well. Um, really positive is we've we've engaged so much more. We engage a lot with um, Huey's sister and his family and, we've, and they've been up to visit us a couple of times and um, – and that has really strengthened, I think. So there's there's a lot of real positives out of it. I think everybody's probably had a weight lifted by the salute by what's resolved in that part of our life. Um, I get and here I, <laughs> I can't believe this, but it, I use a bit of a shooting term. Like when you're learning to shoot, because most people are rubbish. You know, you'll you'll try and line up and you shoot all the way to the left. And then you'll adjust all your sights and then you shoot all the way to the right. And then you'll just keep adjusting left and right. And then finally you'll have your rifle adjusted. So every time you shoot, you'll hit your bullseye for whatever. That's kind of where we're at now. And I'm sure we've, we've come here and we're all left and then we go all the way to the right and then we'll go, we'll go either way and then we'll settle into that space. And all those things contribute, whether it's changes at station, us settling in, COVID, shops, you know, helicopter, whatever it is, we'll just continue to go left and right and then finally you your know, target. There. But we, we your know, target might change. <laughs> yeah, but at least we know now what that target is that we're heading towards and we're just we're just trying to get ourselves on point as yeah. opposed to not having not having any sort of aim point at all. <laughs> yeah. I think um 
like what you said before, yeah, there's so some publications here really focus on the rosy side and other ones really focus on the struggle. And I find it hard to get a balance, like, and, and generally each kind of like have their niche and it's all happy stories or it's all like sad stories. But what I, I suppose what I was trying to get across, yeah, I'm not being very articulate here, is that while you guys have made great positive steps forward, it doesn't mean it's all, oh, happy days, the end of the story, this is it, where we're at now, We've got, not that you've got further things to work through or to settle or, you know, and this is, uh, we'll be recording for like, uh, I'm like, I wonder if I can get two episodes out of this. I wonder if I can split this into two. Um, but this may be a conversation for another time, but about, you know, we've had some really good chats this week about the role of women on stations and and uh sometimes how you know people or you know not just women but get pigeonholed into certain roles um you know from talking to other people in the industry and and then figuring out you know what do you want to do and you know especially as as somebody's partner or part of a management team which we may i may do like a, a another episode on that where i speak to several different people but just, I just, I suppose I wanted to get across that, yeah, you've, you've come out of something. It's been a big positive change, but then I just don't want to leave people thinking like, oh, and life is, you know. No, absolutely. But then, I, but then when I say like, I don't want to leave people thinking, oh, life is all glossy, then I don't want to leave people thinking like, oh, and they're still struggling. Like, I don't know how to, yeah, I'm like, I just feel like I've just dug a hole here and I'm not, yeah. I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> yeah. I didn't but, mean it like that. No, but I think, I don't know. The way I, I sort of take that is it's, you know, stuff's in a magazine or on an Insta feed or wherever for a reason. But, um, and I think I spoke to you that it, it frustrates me because, you know, I'm not, when you're, when you're doing it tough, when you're having one of those tough times in your regular work and you're just reading about someone who's, you know, got their shopping something, something like, you go, well, you know, they've got their shop online and then they've got that, then they're doing their PhD and, and whatever else. You're just like, that's, I'm never, that's so far from what I am ever going to be able to find space in my life to do. It's not even relevant. I'm not even going to read it anymore. Yeah. Um, because there's nothing that resonates there that I can take out of that and go, how can I take that little piece and insert that into my life and be inspired by it? It's just, it's too much the other way. And, you know, I I tend to just look these days. I look a bit closer to home. You know, we've got great sort of neighbours here, and I'm like, how do I just ask them? Like, how do you sort this problem in your scenario? And they're like, oh, we don't do that at all. We do that. Oh, yeah, right. And I like you, you can share. You can ask people around you, and I think that's a great thing. Definitely in this larger station environment in Northern Australia, a lot of managers. Um, and without that family, you can ask a question. You can ask a budget question. You can ask a how do you do question. You can ask a how do you cope question, and they'll give you their heartfelt advice on how they do it without worry that it's going to make them look bad or going to make someone look bad Like because it's understood that that's advice for you. So you can, you know, and that way it's it's realistic. It's something you can take and you can insert into your life or into your way of thinking Um you know, and I, what I do, I guess probably what those publications do bring attention to, and it's something we said, is that a lot of the partners here, like where you haven't, and I'm, I'm speaking obviously from woman's point of view, but it can also be blokes. Um, what they do show is that there's a lot of professionals with skill sets in rural areas that 
that are on properties. And I think that's probably the thing um, I know I have found very frustrating these and I still kind of do is that you, you feel like you've got all this capability or skill set that doesn't really have a place on your stage. So you try and make it best you can, but you'd, you'd really like some way to get that out. Yeah, you like know? you've gone from logistics of getting people and supplies overseas in times of conflict to now the now <laughs> logistics I, of ordering stores, which it. is still quite complicated. It is. I'm but still yet to might not be your passion, might not, you know, burn yeah. your soul. But it's, it's the same, you know, it's a smaller image. But, yeah, like so – and the, the answer to that is not necessarily, you know, person X needs to leave and work in that. Um, I think um, organisations, like I've said, point of remote roles, which are really trying hard to have that remote work and connect – in that passive way, employers with people on stations in rural areas that can offer things, not just in a full-time capacity, but even a part-time or a project one. I think that is a really, really great idea. And I've, I've recommended that to so many friends like who just want to be able to do like a short job or something part-time that, and, the, and that leaves you connected. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's just recognizing that not not everyone fits in the cookie cutter or wants the cookie or wants the cookie, you know, there's all these sort of little gray areas in between. And, um, and that's, I think that's a bit that's kind of missing in some of the publications at the minute. It's not, it's not all Insta, Snapchat. Which is funny because I feel like there is that conversation about like, don't compare yourself to other people. Comparison is a thief of joy. Like not everything you see online is, is real. But then if you look at these, and this is very specifically like rural publications aimed, you know, and we're not just talking like print, podcast, digital, like there's, there's quite a few of them out there now. And yeah, I, it's actually, yeah, I think I'll save this for another episode, but just note that I have had a few people come up to me lately and be like, Oh no, I've stopped reading or listening to that because I just feel like insignificant and like a failure all the time. I was like, holy shit, because I know that's not their intention. They're Absolutely not, not but no. may not realise that that's, that's what's happening. So I, um, wow, we have been recording for, well, I know the episode won't be two hours, but from when we first started pre-recording your short stories, it's been about two hours. So, um, I will, I'll let you get back to, you know, it is a Saturday. I should let you, not that it's a day off or anything, but <laughs> this kind of counts as time off though, doesn't it? Like, yeah, absolutely. No one's come and given you a problem for the last two hours to solve. I have to hide out here more often. I know. Um, <laughs> see, there's always positives to the podcast. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I want to ask you, uh, I like to ask people how they look after themselves and that can be physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, you know, on a kind of on a broader level or day to day basis. Um, I guess me, I haven't been. If I'm true, that's one of the things I've triaged off when it gets sort of flat. So for me, uh, at the minute, I've actually just started talking to a lady, totally out of this space, to just chill, like not chill, but just work through some things off farm um, that I can't work through with people on farm, and that's been fantastic um because yeah it's it's totally it's a person listen to me (laughs) it doesn't care about all the noise and I can't bring that noise into the conversation either so uh, I've found that's been been really helpful um the other time other things I like to do is washing and (laughs) (laughs) liar (laughs) what about not folding washing what about the uh again coming back to your uh 
discipline and what you how you start your every day oh it's not every day but i have i have had a good run this week yeah i like to no every day since i've been here at least (laughs) i try and take half an hour 45 minutes in the morning to do some exercise pretty much i'll try and take the dogs for a run or sometimes it's not sometimes it's a cycle but yeah i try and try and start the day doing that and that just gives some quiet um lets me sort of just have a bit of space and it also keeps you healthy like you know when you're feeling crap and life's a bit on top of you or you're just busy because you're busy this is a busy season for us um you know it's really easy to to not and I did that last year I didn't do it for sort of three or four months until rainy season came again and you just feel rubbish so for me just doing that bit of exercise and it's nothing significant again or well betting I'm not running marathons or anything but it does just give you a bit of headspace and yeah I'm pretty lucky if I'm if I've got something on here we'll usually if he's around <laughs> usually dodge the calls for that um that uh space to let me have that which is nice and to finish up, looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson that you have learned? I think at the minute, just looking back, not to give away my decision-making role in a relationship. I think a lot of the decisions definitely in the past 10 years, I've, I have said, oh, I'm not being part of that because this is – this entertain where I probably should have that gut feel. I probably should have acted on it, and and we like, yeah, I've reflected on it a bit because at the end of the day, you can't blame. There's a whole lot of factors, but your choice is your choice. You can't blame someone else for it. So for me, a choice I probably or choices depending on, that I've let run too long, I probably should have made a bit earlier. And it is, it's a cliche, but it is sort of trust your gut. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.